traveled to Africa, people from Africa, sometimes told Eddie Harris that he looked like he might be from Senegal instead of St. Louis, where in fact he was from. And when he finally arrived at the border of Senegal, the first black nation he had ever set foot in, a man at the border found out that he was from America and incredibly told him, welcome home. We're glad you're here. It was a pretty magical, magical moment, and I was expecting it to have opened the door into everybody saying, welcome home, brother. And a lot of, I got a lot of welcome home, brother, but I also got a lot of, how come you didn't come sooner, brother? Or what are you doing to help us, brother? You who are the most educated and the richest black people on the planet, how come you're not doing more to help us out, brother? As black Americans. As black Americans, yeah. Freddie, as for a lot of black Americans, Africa had always been this kind of lurking specter somewhere in the back of his mind. There was this idea that there was some place out there that could be a motherland. And then there was the reality of life in Africa. For nearly a year, he traveled through the continent, staying with local people, living how they lived, eating what they ate. And he was often horrified at the conditions of their lives. The lack of food, the disease, infant mortality rates, one repressive political regime after another, all often accepted with this kind of God-will-provide attitude. Anyway, it all came to a head at the end of his trip when he was on a boat going up a river in Zaire. Well, there was this captain on this boat who, because I was taking pictures on the deck of this boat, had me and this English person, Justin, hauled up to the bridge. And while we were there, he was vilifying this, this white guy, this Englishman, because his ancestors had hauled my ancestors out of Africa. And he wanted to know why I wouldn't come to Africa to live and help build the place up. And he wanted to know as well how I could, in good conscience, I suppose, live my life among, among these white people who had, who had stolen my ancestors away. And after having traveled in Africa already now for for many, many months, and I was tired and exhausted and had lived this African experience and was just beat down. I turned to this white guy, Justin, and said, thanks for his ancestors having stolen my ancestors. In the, in the mind and in the eyes of black Americans, that's probably a horrible thing to say because what, it's, what it sounds like is I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for slavery, which is not the case at all. What it's what it says to me is that I'm grateful for that I'm grateful for being alive and for having grown up as a black person in America. That I don't know if I'd want to trade places with anybody African living in the middle of Zaire. Do you feel like there's a certain amount of pressure on black Americans to embrace Africa as a homeland? Yeah, and it's all around and you're supposed to, as a black person, toe this black person party line and embrace Africa as your homeland, even though most, most, most black Americans haven't got a clue about Africa, no more clue about Africa than I had, no more clue about Africa than they've got about Antarctica. It's a faraway place that if you dropped them off in the middle of no place and said, you're home now, they'd be completely lost. And yet they're supposed to have this, this emotional allegiance to this place. And I just can't, uh, I can't buy it. Well, from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, going home to a place you've never been. 
A lot of people try it. Act 1. Exile. A 26-year-old from Los Angeles gets deported to the country of his parents' birth. He last set foot there when he was five. He has no memories of the place. He knows no one there. People have a hard time understanding him when he talks. This, he's told, is his new home. Act 2. Brothers from another mother. Two stories of people finding strangers who they become convinced are, in some way, the home they have never known. Stay with us, one Act 1. Exile. In 1996, tough new immigration laws were passed, making it easier to deport legal U.S. residents who committed crimes. The law expanded the definition of a deportable crime and made the change retroactive. Gang members from the United States were suddenly being exported in larger numbers to their countries of birth. And many of them greeted these new homes away from home by acting exactly how they had acted here in the States. There have been big, big rises in gang activity in El Salvador and other countries as a result of the new laws. Jose William Hueso Soriano, a.k.a. Weasel, was deported just over a year ago to El Salvador. He had to make the adjustment from living in a very rich country to a rather poor one. And he had to figure out who to be in this place that he was told was his new home. Radio producer Joe Richmond gave him a tape recorder to document how he's getting along. Here's the story they put together. Uh, what's up? My name is uh, Jose William Hueso Soriano. They call me Weasel. I've been having that nickname ever since I was a kid, so I've had it for a long time. Let's see. Here we go. Dialing um, out of the country right now. Zero one I'm 27 years old. Uh, I, I live in El Salvador. Uh, I've been here a year, a year and a half. It's ringing. Hello. Hello. Hi. Flor. What's up? Not much. How you doing? I'm doing good. My goodness. Where, where are you? I'm in El Salvador. Where else? <laughs> I just wanted to talk to mom, eh, and see how she's doing. Here she is. Hold on. All right. My mom. My mom's cool, man. My mom's name is Esther. Esther. And I have her name tattooed on me, like with a little rose. Hi, mijo. Mom. How are you, mom? Good, mom. And how are you, mom? I'm the youngest of uh, seven kids. I come from a close-knit family, you know. We're used to being around each other, you know. My mom's in L.A., she lives in Burbank. My sister's in Burbank. All my nieces and nephews are in Burbank. My brother's in North Hollywood. And here I am. She's telling me she likes me to call her up and tell her that I'm doing all right because then she feels all right. Bueno, mom, ya me voy, okay? Uh, te quiero mucho. No, estoy muy bien, mom. I love you, mom. Okay, bye. I got this document right here. 
it says my full name and it has a little box right here that's checked and it says uh, deportable under section blah 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 removed from the states anyways uh, the bottom line is that uh, <laughs> I, I've been banished from the US you know like they used to do in the medieval days they used to ban fools <laughs> I went to kindergarten in LA, elementary school, junior high school, high school. I grew up singing, you know, My Country Tis of Thee, <laughs> you know, that little song, America the Beautiful, I learned, you know, pledging allegiance to the flag, and, you know, I grew up with all that, you know. Here they are, you know, 20 something years later, kicking me out. Okay, we're on we're on route to San Jacinto. This is uh the number five bus going to downtown. These are these are like old school buses from the United States that they send over here, paying them up, and they use them for public transportation. Everybody's looking at me weird. I'm like wearing glasses, headphones, I got this microphone. I'm just looking at the people, all the little shacks. There's these little shacks on the side of the road. It's a trip right here. Well, maybe I should tell you a little bit about um when I first got here. Damn. As I was driving uh, to the city from the airport <laughs> it was hot I would just like look to the side and see just little uh, adobe huts shacks and I was like no I ain't staying here man this is crazy man I ain't gonna live like in no mud hut you know it was like if they sent me back like 200 years and I was like they might as well have put me on Mars we're pulling over now. Okay, here we are. We're in San Jacinto already. These streets we're walking on. Um, this is where um, I first came when I got deported. I didn't know anybody in El Salvador because all my relatives are in the United States, you know. So, um, got a hold of uh, one of my dad's distant cousins, you know, that he hadn't seen for like 10, 20 years. She um, gave me a break and let me stay here, you know. Hola! <laughs> Como esta, tío? Gordito. Hola. When I first got here, uh, everybody thought I was a weirdo, you know. They didn't even believe I was from here because I had such a tough time speaking Spanish. I speak Spanish, but a different Spanish, you know. We're walking in the door. I stayed in that room right there. It's um, it was like a storage room. I'll open this door here. Pero no hay luz aquí atrás, ¿eh? Damn, there's no light here. Uh, when I first got here. I looked at the place where I was going to stay and I said, this is it. 
Because I walked in and all I seen was like pieces of wood like nailed together and the house was made out of concrete but it was like all dark. The toilet was like <laughs> in the middle of the yard. It was like a little outhouse. It was just like nothing I was used to, you know. I spent the night in this room. And the first day I was there, I was uh, almost falling asleep. And a big old cockroach. <laughs> that sucker had to be at least three inches. Fell right on my chest, man. And I just jumped up. I grabbed at it and I just threw it. And I just, I heard it. That's how big it was. I heard that sucker fly across the room. Boom, hit a wall. And I heard that sucker actually run away. It was a trip, man. <laughs> When I was like in the, I think third, fourth grade, um, my teacher like sent me to get like an IQ test, and they recognized me as gifted and talented. My parents telling me like, ah, you're intelligent, you know, you're gonna be a doctor, a lawyer. But you know, things happen when you're growing up, you know, and um, you get caught up in uh other things, you know. My criminal history started uh, when I was a juvenile. Uh, I'm kind of a short guy, you know, I'm not too tall. and But I was like a little tough kitty. I got into the gang when I was like 14 years old. I was into drugs and violence and stuff. Auto burglary, you know. I was living a crazy life. So I was just hanging out with my homeboys one day and had a little gun, took it. A little 25, I think it was, 22. I don't know. We we're cruising in this neighborhood and seen some people. The driver pulled over, me and the other guy walked out. Went up to the people, told them, you know, it's not worth it, man, give it up. So they gave it up. Their wallets, their purses, watches. So we took off, you know, went to go pawn the stuff, but um, as we were leaving the pawn shop, boom, the cops swooped on us, drew their guns, you know, put us all face down in the middle of the street, you know, helicopter in front of everybody, you know, big old scene, you know, took us in, gave me three years in prison. Anyways, um, right when my time was about to finish in prison, I was out in the yard playing handball. They came and called me. An INS agent came to visit me. And um, I didn't think nothing of it because I thought he was just going to ask me, like, you know, where's your green card or where's your papers, you know? So he interviewed me to prove I was El Salvadorian, right? They said, um... What's the national anthem? I was like, man, I don't know. What's the biggest river? I was like, what? I told him, look, man, I don't know nothing about El Salvador. I've been in this country for over, you know, 20 years, man. I don't know nothing about that country. 
he was all pissed off because I didn't know what the biggest river was. I mean, I grew up in L.A., you know. Longest river there is L.A. River, you know. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the bottom line is that they said uh, they seen a pattern of uh, criminal history and criminal activity. They felt like, you know, there was uh, no chance for me that I couldn't change. And, and that's why they deported me, you know. The longest river here is uh, Rio Lempa, the Lempa River. And it goes all through El Salvador. Oh, I know that now. <laughs> Right now we're driving through, making some bus stops. Uh, this is like MS territory. And about like four or five blocks down, we're gonna enter a, a different gang territory. This is a little paragraph in a tour guide book. It says, uh, on your own no Salvador. And there's a little paragraph here that's kind of highlighted. And it says, Gang trouble. Gang violence in the cities like L.A. and New York has spurred the U.S. government to deport many of its worst offenders back to their native countries. For some Salvadorans with a history of violence and arrests, that means a return trip to El Salvador. So this is in a guidebook. I feel like I'm a tourist. A permanent one. <laughs> We're at um, this place. There's Mexican food called uh, Quetaco Garabato. I've tried the tortas here. Um, they're excellent. I recommend them a lot. I'm going to try a quesadilla today. Oiga, ¿me puede traer otro agua de Jamaica, por favor? Gracias. Now that I accepted that the fact that I have to stay here, I started changing a few things, you know. I've had a lot of help from like my family, you know, my cousins. They make furniture here, they're carpenters by trade. I work with them, you know, for no pay. I didn't mind considering the fact that uh, I was a criminal and I got deported and dad heard a little bit about my uh, past, you know. Considering all that, uh, they still let me stay. You know, I really appreciate it, but, uh, you know, now I live out on my own. Oh, the food's here. A little chile right there. Damn, the food looks delicious. You know, when I came back here, I, I remembered a few things, like foods that I hadn't smelled or tasted, like, for years. And, like, and I tried it, and I go, hey, I know this flavor. You know? And then, bam! I remember this flavor when I was a kid. I mean, it's like trying to remember a dream, you know? It's like fuzzy. You only remember like little pieces. Mm-mm. As you can see, I'm talking with my mouth full. We'll take a little break here. Um, savor the delicacies. <laughs> Get back at you in a few minutes. Out.
where I live right now. Actually, it's a good looking place. Got a high ceiling, it's pretty big. My room. I had it all painted. Um, I did like some graffiti style spray paint, like artistic stuff. Anyways, um, right now I'm just playing some uh, music. Pedro Infante is a Mexican ranchera singer. My dad, uh, he used to like Pedro Infante. It's just something about the music that brings back a lot of memories. Oh, got a little black photo album in front of me right here. Okay, there's a picture of me in fifth grade. I had long hair. <laughs> Had a Pink Floyd shirt on, <laughs> wearing Vans, you know, Levi's. There's a picture of my brother uh, skateboarding. We had a half pipe in my backyard, you know. <laughs> Those are some memories, you know. I guess, like, my closest relationship that I had would be with uh, my brother. He's uh, six years older than me. And he took care of me a lot. I remember this one time uh, we were hanging out and uh, there was these two real pretty girls. My brother was already a teenager, you know. He was uh, trying to make out with this girl. And, and I liked her friend, you know. <laughs> so I tried to do the same thing my brother did. but So I tried to kiss the girl. <laughs> and she popped me in the mouth. <laughs> I'm busting my lip and I started crying. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I remember my brother, like, he was just like hugging me, holding me, telling me, hey, shh, be quiet, be quiet, come on. You know, cleaning the blood off my lip with his shirt. You know, I don't know, for some reason, uh, I always thought I was smarter than my brother. I mean, I spoke better English, you know. Uh, I had better skills like math skills, but um, my brother, uh, he always did the right thing, you know. My brother's the L.A. sheriff, and me, you know, I'm the, <laughs> I'm the convict, you know. He did good things, you know, I did bad things. My brother joined the army, I joined the gang. What's up? What's up? What's this? What's this game called? I don't know the name of it. Eh? Hey, uh, you got Beatles here? Yeah. All right, we're gonna play the Beatles right now. Oh shit! It's a little loud. Got the Beatles playing in the background. Just relaxing right here in the billiards. Brand new billiards. There's uh fluorescent lights. It's cool, man. It's like a place in the United States. Oh, the chalk? chalk? Where's the chalk at? Where's the chalk? I don't know. Well, when I first got here, um, I didn't know anybody. So one day, I I seen two guys in the distance, like dressed like LA style, like baggy, and and I said, um, 
those guys ain't from here, you know. Right at the back, I knew they weren't from here, you know. As he got closer, I said, damn, I know that fool. He looks familiar. And he got closer, and I said, yup, that's him. And I told him, what's up, fool? <laughs> you know, and he looks at me. He was like, damn, damn. He couldn't stop saying damn, you know. He was just like, damn, what's up, man? He goes, you're from here? I said, yeah, man, well, I got deported, man. You know, he's like, damn, me too, man, what's up? Damn. I see you got a little more, a couple <coughs> of tattoos. Oh, you got one on your arm, like by your elbow. What does that say right there? Pokey, rest in peace. I see you got a real nice one in your leg, eh? Um, <laughs> some real good work. Um, who did that work? <laughs> Just kidding, I did it. <laughs> they make you dress like this to go to work? Well, they don't make me, but uh, in the way I like it, the way I dress, you know what I mean? You got to change your style sometimes. Yeah, a little bit classic. White long sleeve shirt. I ran Black into uh, other guys I know from prison. That, you know, they're doing all right. There's uh, Edgar. He did some prison time. He got deported. Alex. Frank. Rabbit. It didn't matter that he had kids that were uh, U.S. citizens. Uh, they deported him anyway. They split up his family. Ringo has kids too, a little daughter. They're like my second family, you know. We're out in the main street now. Walking by the mariachis here. I'm going to go see what that's like right now. Here they come, watch out. Here they come. Oh, you did it now, man. Chiquita, chiquita. It's weird, but um, in a way, I'm glad, you know, I'm not in L.A. <laughs> Over there in, in uh, Los Angeles, a lot of guys are dead during life in prison or just lost in drugs, you know. I feel lucky because I'm alive still, you know. I'm just through with that lifestyle, you know. I'm doing good. I'm working. I'm doing the best I've ever done in my life. You know, damn, I feel more alive now, you know. I just, I woke up, eh, and I just snapped out of it. I feel like I've been given a second chance. Here I am, in my living room. I got this video, you know. It's a tape that um my family recorded. Let's see what's on here. There's Burbank where we live. I see the main street right there, Victory. The apartments where my mom lives and my sister lives next door. I'm going to turn up the volume a little bit. Saludos, <laughs> There goes my mom, eh? she's smiling all goofy, making faces at the camera. She's all nervous, she doesn't know what to say. 
And my mom says that she sends me uh, hugs and kisses and that she loves me, she misses me. I haven't seen my mom for like over a year, year and a half. I know I'm going to see her soon. But um, as for me to go live with her and just like, be around her, that's impossible now. I imagine it, man. Damn. Seeing my mom, you know, hugging her, like feeling the love that she generates, you know, like, damn. Having a meal with her, you know, talking to her, laughing with her, seeing my family. <laughs> I'll be 47 years old by the time I'm eligible to go back. 47, man. I don't think I might even want to go back at that age. My mom ain't gonna live no, you know, she's 66 right now. She's not gonna live no 20 years, man. It's fucked up. Hello, 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 I miss you. Call me. Me too. I see you soon. <laughs> I see you soon, man. <laughs> that was the end of the tape. Everybody's happy in the video. They're all telling me they miss me, they love me, you know. That's really good, you know, to hear once in a while. Especially if it's uh, pre-recorded, you know. You could always play it again and again. <laughs> Noches negras de mi vida que mataron well, we got a few minutes left uh, Before I close, I just want to say uh, What's up to all my familia Let you all know that I'm thinking of you And uh, I don't want you guys to worry Because uh, I'm living good here I love you mom, I miss you and um, I know you're proud of me. It's about it. I'm signing out. It's a wrap. <laughs> These days, Weasel's job is working with an organization in San Salvador called Homies Unidos. He's their treasurer. The group is made up of current and former gang members who are working to reduce gang violence in El Salvador. Weasel wanted to dedicate this radio story to his friend at Homies Unidos, Ringo, who is mentioned in the story, actually, and was shot and killed in El Salvador last week. Weasel's diary was reported and narrated by Jose William Hueso Soriano, that is, by Weasel. The story was produced by Joe Richmond as part of the Radio Diaries series with help from Wendy Dorr. This great big world And I've seen all kind of girls Yeah, but I couldn't wait to get back in the States Back to the cutest girls in the world I wish they all could be California I wish they all could be California I wish they all could be California girls Coming up, photographs spotted by chance in a country other than the one in which it was taken. A man named Irving met one spring night in the living room. 
and how these random encounters push people's lives through 180-degree turns. That's in a minute from Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week on a program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of stories on that theme. Today's program, going home to the place you've never been. Up until now in our program, we've heard stories of people who ended up in foreign countries that they'd been told was their motherland, but it didn't really feel like home when they got there. In this half of the program, we hear from people who stumbled upon a place where they instantly and instinctively felt more at home than in their real homes. We've arrived at Act 2, Act 2. Brothers from another mother. As Stephen Dubner writes in his memoir, Turbulent Souls, he was raised in a big Catholic family in upstate New York, youngest of eight kids, altar boy in church. And one year, after he went away to college, a student was giving him a ride back to his mother's during spring break, and they stopped at a house on the way. The driver announced that they were going to stop for two days to attend his grandfather's 80th birthday party. And Stephen found himself in this house full of strangers. And the night before the party, I was staying there, and there was this other family staying there, and there was this guy named Irving, and Irving, with his wife and two children, Irving said to me, you know, they said that they were from Brooklyn, that they had flown down from Brooklyn, and I said, oh, my parents are from Brooklyn. I said, yeah, where, whereabouts? Or he said, whereabouts? And I said, I don't know, I, th- I think my, mo- my mother lives somewhere near Ebbets Field. He said, you've never been back? You've never been back to visit your bubba? I said, what's a bubba? And he looked at me. He said, aren't you Jewish? And I said, well, no. I said, but, you know, now that you mention it, uh, my parents were both Jewish, and then they both became Catholic. And when I said that, he looked at me like I was uh, a freak. For some reason, I was very relaxed with this family. And we were hanging out in this place where I had no idea why I was there, what I was doing there. And I, and, and I started playing piano, and we played and played, and they sang, I played, they sang. And he said, well, you sure play the piano like you're Jewish. And I said, well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And he said, from where I sit, you know, that's a good thing. Um, and I felt this connection with Irving and his family like I'd kind of never felt before. It was a, a level of comfort that was very odd. I mean, for, you know, for me to be a kind of weird, shy teenager in a place that I was uncomfortable with, with people I'd never met, to be relaxed enough to, like, hang out all night and play the piano with them and sing songs that were essentially silly, um, yeah, there was kind of this level of relaxation that went beyond... It's like what you want your family to be, you know? Mm-hmm. 
I think there was something that I'm I'm scared to call it genetic and it's obviously something more than some kind of cultural fingerprint but there was something in the way that Irving kind of looked at the world and the people in it and there was a manner about him that um, that relaxed my genes a little bit you know and it's one of those inexplicable things that is very real you know it's like love I guess right you can't define it and you can't bottle it and you can't turn it into an equation but you know how much it either hurts or makes you feel good and this was exactly like that this is precisely the sort of not easy to explain experience that changes people's lives and it changed Stevens later he looked back on it as the turning point that led him to converting to Judaism which brings us to our next story a Hungarian journalist who was passing through the States told us about this one and went out with a tape recorder here in Chicago to do the interviews for our program. Her name is Anna Langel. The story is about two people who had exactly the same kind of irrational moment of recognition that Stephen Dubner experienced. They simply decided at some point that they had more in common with each other than either one of them had with anyone else. The story begins with a woman named Ida who was born in Poland during the Second World War to a Jewish family. When the Nazis invaded Poland and started shipping Jews off to concentration camps, she was separated from her family, including from her twin brother, Adam. A Christian family took her in and pretended that she was their child until after the war, when her father tracked her down and retrieved her. They searched for the rest of their family, but they never found them. And long after she moved to the United States, to Chicago, she couldn't get over the feeling that her twin brother was still alive, out there, somewhere. She found that she was always thinking about him imagining what she would say to him when she saw him again. It was kind of a compulsion. Whenever I went to another city or another country, the first thing I would do is pick up the telephone book and search for his name, Paluch. But I had no luck. They were Paluch, but they were not Jewish. Or another country, they were maybe Italian or French or whatever. Wherever I went, I looked in the telephone book. I was, uh, I was looking for for family almost for my whole life. While Ida was searching, there was a man in Poland named Jerzy Dolebski. He grew up in a Christian family, but he never felt right in his family. He says his parents never showed him the affection they gave to their other children. Like Ida, he told his story to Hungarian journalist Anna Langel. I was thinking, what going on? Because I saw other kids, they are kissing by parents, they, they you know, they, they walk, they in Sunday together, then I never. My responsibility was only clean yards around home, clean shoes for everybody. Were you badly treated? Yes, my Polish parents treated me like that, and they told me this is for your uh, best. Around the time Jersey was 12, his Polish parents decided to send him to an orphanage. They told him it was because they didn't have enough money to keep him at home, But, Jersey noticed, they didn't send their other children away. And he concluded that he must be adopted. His Polish family denied it for years, then finally admitted it. So as a teenager, Jersey started to look for his real family. He contacted a Jewish organization in Poland, but they turned him away. They told him he wasn't Jewish. And what finally ended his search and brought these two people together, Jersey and Ida, was a photograph, one photograph, that happened to be published in America. One day... It was 1995. 
my girlfriend sent me this article from Connecticut from Jewish Ledger, and she inscribed on top of it that you might find it very interesting. And in the article, there was description of Jewish Holocaust children survivors and a picture of a bearded man who kind of took me in, into a little shock when I look at him because he looked like my grandfather. So I was in shock a few months, and finally one day I decided I must do something about it, and I wrote to the... Um, a reporter of that Jewish ledger and when I found her I asked her about this man that she interviewed in Poland what does she know about him and she said actually he does not remember much from his childhood I don't remember anything from wartime this is like um, blank something you know like it doesn't exist and I thought many times that the reason I do not hear from my brother is Probably he does not remember. And I decided I'm going to get in touch with him. So on January 13, 1995, I finally called him. And he said, why do you think I am your brother, your twin brother? When were you born? I was born in May 3rd, 1939. So he answered, no, you're not my sister, because I was born October 15, 1942. So I said, how do you know? For sure. He said, because my Christian birth certificate says so. So I took a breath and I told him, guess what? My Christian birth certificate says the same thing, that I was born in 1942. So there are discrepancies here because we had false papers. So I felt very, very strong about it, and I said, my God, how am I going to convince him that he's my brother? Because you were sure? My instinct told me, my everything. I was already sure. And I asked him, do, do you remember anything from the past? Anything. And he says, I told you first time that I did not remember, but now I know that I remember one thing. When I was taken by my Polish foster parents after the war, I was praying something that they reminded me all the time. I was saying, God help mommy, daddy, and Mr. Leon. And I said, do you know who is Mr. Leon? He says, no. I said, that's the name of our father. You were praying for your father. You had been married by this time. You? I, you know, I was married, I married my wife in 1965. And when I saw my wife, after three days, I decided to marry her. Uh, I don't know why, till I found my sister. She sent me a picture of my mother, you see here. My wife looks similar, very similar to my mother. And I, th I think, you know, by folk, like by folk, I remember something. Since that time when we both established that there is possibility we are twins, 
I cried every day for any little thing. I was so sensitive. I couldn't concentrate at work. And I missed him. I wanted to hear him all the time. I wanted to talk to him. And it seemed like uh, we had like a tele... Telepathy. Patia, right. Whenever I thought about him, he would call me. And in the beginning, he called me once in two weeks. Then he called me every week. And toward the end, he called me five, six times a day. It was not enough. Still, there was no concrete evidence that they were brother and sister, and nothing in the official paper trail suggested that they were related. But Ida decided to go to Poland anyway, to meet the man she believed was her brother. So, the final date that we established that I'm going to go to Poland, April 28, 1995, and we met in the Warsaw airport for the first time. And, um, I mean, it was like a magnet. From all the people that stood there, I knew which one is my brother. Uh, my brother also brought some um, people from Polish television to record this moment of us meeting. So there were cameras, and uh, we felt like celebrities, and of course we had no privacy. Wasn't, wasn't <laughs> was that too strange. bad? Hmm? It was a little strange, but I just seen my brother, nobody else. I just seen the miracle, what happened. And people were standing around and crying, not knowing actually why we are crying. First night our, in our uh, life together, we slept in one room. In one we room. We were talking. And we talked. And All in, night. in one moment, we started to sing the same Little song. Lie. And I asked her from when you know this, this song. Because I, for, to, for today, I don't know from when, because I never heard from my Polish yeah. parents. And we mm. were singing the same lullaby about two kittens, you know, like twins. Ida was supposed to stay in Poland just two weeks, but two weeks became four. They just could not stand the idea of being separated from each other. Then Jersey decided to change his name to Adam Paolo, the name I'd have told him he had been born with. Meanwhile, his family was having trouble adjusting. And his wife of 30 years, the mother of his children, started to become jealous of Ida. When my sister came, I bring her to our home. You know, and this was understandable for me. I, I, I held her hand, we walked on the street, for example, we talked all the time. And the truth was... I have no time for my wife, you know, me and my sister, we have, you know, so much information to, to share, and... And she was, your wife was jealous. Uh, my wife, for example, told me, I don't want uh, uh, you to go to work without your sister, uh, you know, uh, hand uh, with her... Hand in hand. Hand in hand, because... People started to talk, you have another woman, nobody knows uh, this is your sister. You know, and I tell her, don't fight with my sister because you will lose. His family did not respond the way he expected. When I came, I was the proof that he is a Jew. 
and they did not want anybody in Poland to know that. They told us not to advertise that we are Jewish. When I was about to leave Poland, he told me that he would like to meet my family and I wanted him to meet my family. So he came here as a tourist. He had a visa for a few months. And once he came with me to Chicago, uh, every time we thought about that separation was harder to talk. And also, unfortunately, his family got cooler toward him, his wife and his children. They stopped calling him, they stopped talking to him. His wife wouldn't come to the telephone when he called her. Things fell apart. I suppose you had a family of your own. Yes. That's a very good point you're asking me. My family was surprised and felt like they're losing me, like what's happening to me. Um, all heart somewhere else. They were not ready for that. I was stranger, uh, you know, and they they try to 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 understand how, in which way I am her brother. It was very hard. Even my daughter told me that I'm neglecting her grandchildren, her children, because of my brother. they show on TV movie about our meeting about my life and they uh, prepare opinion I am bad man because I uh, leave my family you know he was portrayed uh, as the one who left the family uh, the bad guy and the, and the, and they were and the, the victims the, the, the movie was prepared like that oh th uh, this to jest prawdziwy żyd zostawił wszystkich jak to yeah, this is a true jew that's that's why he left his wife there was no way to come back no. they didn't make him welcome no. anymore the, the truth was i burned after me bridges Adam decided to stay in America. He filed for divorce. He'd been struggling in his marriage for years anyway. He moved in with Ida's family for two years, then moved down the street from her. He took English classes. But getting a green card was difficult. Ida wrote letters to Congress people, to immigration officials, to anybody she could think of. My sister fight of me about for me about almost two years. And this was this was really fighting, you know. She lost two times job because of that. How come you, you lost jobs? Well, because I couldn't concentrate anymore on anything. Just, you know, I wanted him to stay and I felt very, you know, uh, to defend him like a mother. And I had this closeness to him. I had no, to protect him. My previous life took care of me like she did. did. Separable. We cannot, uh, I mean, every day we call each other, and now that he lives in his own apartment, we still see each other almost every day. 
It's very strange, but true. I cut finger, she cut finger in the same time. time. In the same place. In two different houses? Yeah. yeah. Ida and Adam told reporter Anna Langel story after story like this, of coincidences that seem to prove to them in some way that they must be brother and sister, even though no hard proof exists. Their families both agitated for DNA tests, but they refused. To them, they don't need further proof. They just know. There's an uncanny quality when you fall in love, and there's an uncanny quality to finding the home you've never had. And at some level, what is there to say? What makes home feel like home? The fact that it feels like home. Uh, You mentioned that you're the two people feeling closest to each other, really closest in this world. So if you uh, happened to have a DNA test tomorrow, which uh, proved, would prove that you're not sister and brother, how would you feel after those? Well, he's still sister and brother, definitely. And a DNA test was already thrown in our faces many times, which in the beginning upset us, not anymore. We don't want to prove to anybody anything. We just prove to each other, and that's enough for us. Anyway, it seems that you were absolutely sure, or you wanted very badly, no, no. very much no. to believe. No, no. But, you know, when I saw her first time on air, in airport, my doubts go out, go, gone away. out, away, immediately. You don't really take after each other. Well, he's exact copy on, on father's side, and I'm a copy of mother's side, you know. When I was in Poland, I decided I will not do any blood test. We don't need it. And I told to my son, if you need, I will do, and I will close an envelope, and I will left in um, lawyer office, and after my death, you can open. <laughs> I can't tell anymore. <laughs> you cry. Yeah. I believe in God. I don't need DNA test because I believe what happened to us, it's, it's, it has the hand of a higher uh, power. People who are not, you know, touched by Holocaust, they don't understand Holocaust survivors, what every little thing means to us. To some, it might be unimportant, nothing to think about twice, and to us, it are very important things because we look for every little uh, piece of evidence. We are already sister and brother when we Holocaust survivors. and have the same past. We understand each other very well, not only me and Adam, but all the people who are in our group of hidden children and Holocaust children survivors understand each other. You can say one sentence and they'll finish it for you.
Those interviews by Anna Langel, a senior producer for Hungarian Radio in Budapest. program produced today by Elise Spiegel and myself with Nancy Updike and Julie Snyder. Contributing editors Paul Toff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and Consigliere Saraval. Production help from Jorge Just, Todd Bachman, and Sylvia Limas. Marketing by Marge Strusko. Research help this week from the authoritative Julie Rigby. Eddie Harris, who I spoke with at the top of our program, writes about his long journey through Africa in his book Native Stranger. Special thanks today to Jay Allison and Margie Rockland. To buy a cassette of this program, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312 832 3380, or you know, you can listen to most of our programs for free on the internet at our website, www.thislife.org. Thanks to Elizabeth Meister, who runs the site. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been, has been provided by Amazon.com. The books and music you hear on This American Life are available at Amazon.com, where there are 4.7 million video, CD, and book titles online at www.amazon.com. All the funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds, from the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, and from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malati, who greeted me today as he greets me every single day. Damn! Damn, he couldn't stop saying damn, you know? He was just like, damn. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. Come, come, come to me. PRI, Public Radio International.